Open up your Bibles with me to Titus once again, Titus chapter 3. We're going to continue um, in, in, a, in a short series, a short theme that we began this morning. And it, if you have looked in your bulletin, I'm calling the series Bad Memories, Good Works, or Good People. I can't remember what I sent to James. Let's read, let's read Titus, Titus 3, 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. To slander no one, to be peaceable, considerate, demonstrating all gentleness to all men. For we ourselves also once were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, despicable, hating one another. But when the kindness and affection of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to His mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that, having been justified by grace, we would become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be intent to lead in good works. These things are good and profitable. For men. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we continue on in this passage of your word, we're mindful mostly of your grace and giving us the riches of your word and giving us the riches of your gospel and giving us this opportunity to hear once again how you are a God who saves and you are a God who saves sinners like us. We pray that you would use your word in our heart to shape and fashion us into the likeness of your Son uh, for his glory. Pray this all in his name. Amen. The final words, or near final words, of John Newton, the famous churchman and hymn writer, particularly of the song Amazing Grace, are these. I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. Some of the last words he ever said. I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. And let me tell you, he had bad memories by the truckload. He described himself in his early life as exceedingly vile. There wasn't an authority figure in his life, it seems, that he didn't despise and rebel against. He became a sailor. Eventually he was press-ganged into the, the British Navy, but as a sailor, he blasphemed God to such a high degree that it made some of the other sailors blush around him. 
Throughout his colorful early days, sea and land, he left no vice unturned or untried. He did all he could to sin. I mean, and then to add to this, his upbringing. He had a Christian mom who raised him in the Christian faith until she died when he was six. She had him memorize the shorter Westminster Confession and the answers. He knew the truth of God. And that even made his sin more more reprehensible. But then add to this even, the career path that he chose, he eventually became the captain of a slave, tra- uh, slave ship. After his conversion, he recounts the evils of his early days in such vivid detail as well. He had bad memories by the truckload. And he remembered them. But these memories, even in their horror, had a redeeming effect on him. And not only on him, but those around him. They led him to constantly and consistently thank and praise God, his Savior, for his grace. And they they led him to labor diligently for Jesus' purposes to his dying day. His hymn, as we all well know, Amazing Grace, shows that he never forgot the depths from which he was saved. That line we're so familiar with, right? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It saved a wretch like me. Bad memories of your sin can be used by God for His glory and your good. That's what we talked about this morning. We want to continue talking about this. And I want to add to it a little bit more tonight. Bad memories can be used by God for His glory and your good in your life, but only if you redeem these bad memories through the right interpretation of them. Bad memories can only have a positive impact on your life and the life of those around you if you actively, deliberately interpret those bad memories through the grace of Christ Jesus on the cross. Bad memories can only do spiritual good if you look at them through spiritual gospel glasses. Remember our definition of a bad memory. A bad memory is an unwelcome recall of something in your past that brings shame, guilt, embarrassment, defeat, and even fresh temptation in your present. But usefulness for God can be found. But it can only be found when you put your whole life, your whole life, past, present, and future into the context of the gospel and see your life through the gospel. Through the gospel alone, what was previously a millstone in your mind can become a milestone of God's grace. Through the gospel alone. Remember also, your memories are not a shot-for-shot accurate recall of your past. Your memories are your interpretation of your past. And there are many and eager 
interpreters of your past. There are many things and forces that want to help you interpret your past. If you say, I don't want to interpret my past through the Gospel, there will be something else that will want to take the Gospel's place. Here are some interpreters of your past that would love to take the place of the Gospel in your life. Your feelings want to interpret your past. Your feelings want you to feel guilty. Sometimes. Everyone around me, you may think to yourself, must think I'm such a mess, such a horrible person. I'm too ashamed. What if someone knew the kind of person that I am? I never want to go near anyone. Your feelings want to interpret your past. Your fears want to interpret your past. Your culture wants to interpret your past. And maybe this is a flip side, right? Everyone around you struggles the same way. You're normal. Matter of fact, if you didn't do these things, you wouldn't be normal, right? Your culture wants to normalize sin and make it not a big deal. Your culture wants to crowd out any guilt, any conscience whatsoever. They want to interpret your past for you as well. Your anger wants to interpret your past. It was someone else's fault, your anger says. They made me do it. I was innocent until they came into my life. My problems, all of them, are because I have been a victim of someone else. There's another interpreter that would love to take the place of the gospel in your life. Your adversary, the devil, is seeking to interpret your past. See, he says to you, God cannot love you. Not after all you've done. God must be angry at you for something that you've done. That's the only explanation for these situations in your life. God must be angry with you. It's because of that. We must turn to the Gospel to interpret our past. The Gospel gives you the only authoritative interpretation of your past that is stable that doesn't shift and change with the mood of the room. The gospel message and then gospel interpretation of your past never changes. So simply, you need to remember your past through the gospel if you ever want to redeem it for usefulness in the present. Now, once again, we're in Titus chapter 3. Remember, Titus wants these believers to remember certain attitudes and actions in their unbelieving context that they live. He wants them to remember to be subject to rulers, to, to be obedient to authorities, to be ready for every good work. He wants them to remember to not resort to slander, to seek peace and pursue it, to be considerate, long-suffering, demonstrating gentleness with all men. And this obedience can only come by rightly remembering the lives that they lived and reinterpret their lives through the gospel. Tonight, my message is simple. You need gospel truth if you will redeem your bad memories for God's glory and your good. You need gospel truth. And following the the primary command here, uh, Paul's Paul's first word in the, in the first verse of this chapter, remind, we're going, to, we're going to look at five remembrances 
you must use as a believer to interpret your past if you want to redeem it for good works in the present. Five remembrances you, the believer, must use to redeem your past for usefulness in the present. First remembrance. Number one, remember who moved first. Remember who acted first. Remember the, the, the one who was the initiator in your salvation. Notice the beautiful but simple contrast between verse 3 and verse 4. Verse 3 is all you. We were once all. Remember, continually, persistently living this way. We were foolish. We were ignorant of the truth of God. We were rebellious. We were ignorant because we were rebellious. We were enslaved. We were deceived about our condition and continually enslaved to sin and its passions. And this was normal life. Enslavement to sin seemed normal. Godliness seemed strange. Sin seemed normal. And the cumulative effect of all of this, the sin ruling in the heart, was an ugliness, a despicableness, hating one another and being hated. Only social manners keep you from displaying what's truly on your heart if you're an adult and an unbeliever. And notice the contrast here. We are continually, verse 3, when God chooses in verse 4 to enter human history. This is you and this is God coming to the world. The Bible sees salvation this way. The Bible wants you to have such a chronological view of your salvation. This is me, and this is when God came. Well, I was like this. Not on my best terms, but in my worst moments. That is when God came into my life, so to speak. Even though we are 2,000 years removed from Christ's incarnation, this is a vital chronology that we must run through our minds again and again. Who moved first? Remember Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trans uh, transgressions and sins, Paul tells the Ephesians there, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air and the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all also formerly conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in and transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Or there's Romans 5, 6, and 8, right? For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
or 1 Timothy 1.15. It is a trustworthy saying, says Paul, and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost. That's who moved first. God took initiative in salvation while you were an enemy, a sinner, a rebel. And when you interpret your past through the Gospel, your sinfulness only magnifies God's grace. Because God came to you while you were a sinner. And the more you think of your sin, the more you think of God's grace. Because that's exactly how God came to you. He chose you in love while you were a sinner, not in your goodness. And look, look at verse 4 here of Titus 3. Look how God shows initiative to sinners, right? In kindness and affection. This is how God came to sinners like us. The word kindness and affections are double subjects of the verb appeared It's as if to suggest that this is the the dominant quality that God came in Christ Jesus with, with kindness and affection. When Jesus came, kindness and affection came with Him. This was demonstrating God's love in kindness and affection. That is how Christ came. He embodied these things in His own person. Uh, These two words are parallel, very close in meaning. Kindness here refers to a goodness, refers to a generosity of heart. It's not a coldness, it's not a distance, it's not a stinginess, but it's a generosity. It's a goodness. It's kindness. Affection, the word uh, philanthropy is where we get this word. The love of humanity. You are a human, you love humanity. This carries the idea of affection, concern, compassion. That is how Jesus came. Matter of fact, you, you see these two things together in a, a very interesting cross-reference. In Mark 1, 40, 41, you see whenever sinners get near Jesus, this is how Jesus responds. Matter of fact, He's not only generous with Himself, He's also showing a human affection in and of Himself. In, in, in that area of Mark's Gospel, He's approached by a leper. One who perhaps has not been touched by another human for quite some time. One who is under the misery of human sorrow. And Mark records this of our Lord's interactions with this leper. He says in verse 40, Moved with compassion, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. It wasn't just enough. For Jesus to heal the man, that would have been generous. He also reaches out and touches the man. That is affection. Especially when you think about what a touch like that would mean. I mean, we're not that far removed from 2020, right? You guys, have that, you guys still have that PTSD in your mind, right? You remember how it felt to hug someone again? You're a human and you love me and you don't care if you get sick. This man perhaps had not touched another individual in decades. 
And Jesus says, I am going to demonstrate not just generous goodness, but also affection for you in your weakness. When you redeem your bad memories through the truth of the Gospel like this, you are flooded with the love of God's initiative, aren't you? This is who God is when He came to me. In kindness and affection. There's a reason we love that song. Once again, I quoted it earlier, but read this or listen to this part of the, the song, All I Have is Christ. It says this at the beginning of the song, I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will, and, and if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hellbound race indifferent to the co- cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. Think about it this way. There isn't a sin, past, present, or future in your life, that Christ hasn't already taken to the cross. There isn't a sin in your life that you bring to Christ in confession and sorrow and guilt that Christ isn't already saying, yes, I have paid in full for that sin. Or you could flip it around the opposite way. If you don't redeem your memories, if you don't think about your sin in gospel terms, you will be more shaped and formed by others' actions around you, the actions of other people around you, than you are by the truth of God's Word. If you don't redeem your bad memories, fear will shape your life, guilt will shape your life, and not God's love. That is why we must redeem our memories. There's another remembrance we must make. Also, while we're remembering our past, remember also why God moved first. We have to remember that God moved first. We also must remember why He moved first in kindness and affection and in predestining love, of course. Verse 5, the beginning of verse 5 is is one of the key verbs of this entire section, right? And it simply says, He saved us. And notice what it says, for why God saved you. Not by works, which we did in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. God didn't save because of any righteousness found in us, but simply because He chose to display His mercy through us. Uh, This verse is great. Verse 5, just put it up on your, your, your fridge at home. This destroys so many bad theological arguments that are out there in the world. Some people have very interesting views of salvation. This verse just just uproots them all. Some would say, God saves us through our works. He contributes an initial shot of grace into our life. And that gets us going. And then through the church, he continues to you know, inject grace into our life. And slowly but surely, we are saved through works. 
the view of Roman Catholicism through sacraments. Or some, a little bit closer to home perhaps, would say this, God saves us because, well, He looked down the corridors of time and saw who would believe Him and who would obey Him, and He said, I'm going to choose those people. Those who reject the doctrines of grace must have trouble with this verse. Because I don't know about you, but this passage seems to suggest to me that there's only one thing that God saw when he looked down the corridors of time. My and your sin. He saved us not because of works that we've done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. That is why he saved us. What what is mercy? Mercy is the motive of God in acting in kindness towards sinners. It's a kindness and a compassion on someone in not giving them what they deserve. It's usually motivated and based in the pitifulness of the object and the miserableness of their condition. It is a kindness that doesn't have to be kind. You are miserable and you deserve to be miserable, but I am going to act on you because I am having compassion on your misery. That is mercy. You stand justly condemned under sin's eternal judgment and sin's present judgment. God doesn't have to save anyone. In fact, God shouldn't save anyone. God should send us all to hell. But God says in mercy... I see you there in your miserableness and your sin and the eternal damnation of your soul and will choose to have mercy on you. I see you there in your blind ignorance and in your rebellion and I will choose to not treat you as you deserve. Check out this illustration. Turn over to Jonah, Jonah chapter 3. Now this is mercy. Jonah chapter 3. You're familiar with the story? My little Andrew could tell you the story, right? God said, go this way, and Jonah went that way, right? Jonah directly disobeyed God's command. And why? He didn't like the people that God was calling him to go and minister to. And Jonah chapter 1 reveals all of that, and that gets all of the, the play in the storybooks. And there's, there's a bit of room there in Jonah chapter 2, but the part of the story that, you know, those cardboard uh, storybook Bibles struggle with the most is Jonah 3 and chapter 4. This is where it gets a little hairy. This is where we're starting to wonder, like, what in the world is going on? This story did not go the way I thought it would go. I kind of liked uh, the book of Jonah ending halfway through three. Why do we have to go to four? Here's, Here's Jonah after he's spit up from the big fish in chapter three of Jonah. Now the word of Yahweh came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out to it this very call which I am going to speak to you. So this is God's word again. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of Yahweh. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk 
Then Jonah began to go into the city one day's walk, and he called out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Jonah had rebelled against God's command. But, look at that, instead of giving Jonah what he deserved, God delivered him through a fish and preserved his life. And notice this, God preserves his life in mercy in order to give him a chance to repent. That's mercy. But that's not the mercy I want you to see here. Notice Jonah's prayer in Jonah chapter 2. We're not going to go through it, but you see it there in chapter 2, verse 4. When, when Jonah says, Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. And then in verse 7, I remembered Yahweh and my prayer came to you to your holy temple. What was Jonah doing there in the whale, in the fish, sorry? In the fish. He was offering a prayer that was rooted in Old Testament promises. Remember that chapter in 1 Kings 8 where the temple is being dedicated and Solomon uh, offers this massive prayer to God. And basically the prayer is like this. Lord, this is a temple, but we all know that, that you're greater than this temple but we thank you for giving us this temple that we can look to, that we can pray towards in our sin and find your mercy and grace. And Lord, if we ever find ourselves in a situation where we need your mercy and grace, if we pray to you, to this temple, hear us. And Lord, if we're ever defeated in battle, but we pray to you in this temple, hear us. And Lord, if we are even exiled, in judgment, if we pray towards you, towards this temple, hear us. And God condescends to say, I will hear you through this place. Now, what's going on here in Jonah 2? It seems to me that this is a prayer of faith on Jonah's part based in God's promises. He's praying towards the temple of God. And notice this, Jonah can pray this way because of promises that God has already made to Jonah that he knows. I know that if I point towards your temple and remember your covenant and your promises, you will hear me. And that is why I am praying to you in this way. But this is a, this is a prayer based on the promises of God that he's already made. This is parallel to how you or I pray as a Christian, right? We pray believing God's promises to us. We pray because God says, I will answer you when you pray. It might not always be the answer you want, but I will answer you according to my wisdom and for your good and my glory. We pray with assurance that God hears us. The Christian's prayer is rooted in grace. That's undeserved favor. God shouldn't treat us like that. 
God shouldn't put a temple there and, and hear prayers of His people that are prayed towards that temple in their sin. That's grace, undeserved favor towards us. God is kind. God is gracious. So you could say, yeah, Jonah in the belly of the whale is an expression of God's mercy. But it's also an expression of God's grace. God is responding to His promises. And Jonah is leaning on those promises. But this is not the illustration I want to point out from Jonah chapter 3. This is not how an unbeliever approaches God in their sin, looking for repentance. This is not what we see in Titus chapter 3. God, contrary to belief, has no obligation to hear the prayers of sinners. God does not promise does not need to promise salvation to sinners. If anything, he is obligated to do only one thing, and that is judge sinners in his righteousness. And here, in in my mind, is where the mercy illustration of Jonah 3 is really interesting. Jonah is sent back on his mission to preach to the city of Nineveh. And that is mercy on Nineveh. God didn't have to tell Nineveh that he was going to judge them. Did he tell Sodom? Did he tell Gomorrah? Not really. Let's read. Jonah 3, verse 4. Then Jonah began to go into the city one day's walk, and he called out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed in God. And they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his mantle from him, covered himself with sackcloth and sat on the ashes. And he cried out and said, In Nineveh, Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, animal, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat and do not let them drink water. Both man and animal must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God with their strength, that each may turn from his evil way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn away from his burning anger so that we will not perish. Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. So God relented concerning the evil which he had spoken, he would bring upon them, and he did not bring it upon them. That's the parallel. God should have, but he didn't. And that is glorious mercy. Mercy is given to us, a people who are only promised judgment, and God turns from His anger. That is wonderful, marvelous mercy. And you might argue there in verse 10, hey, look, He saw their works, so it does depend on works now. But remember what this work was. This was a response to a message. This was an act of faith. God didn't have to send a prophet As a matter of fact, this is where the story really goes strange. 
we get the sense that Jonah knew how merciful his God was. And that is exactly the reason why he tried to run away from this mission. He's basically saying in verse, in verse 2 of 4, and well, I'll read it to you, and he prayed to Yahweh and said, ah, because that's how it sounds in the Hebrew. <laughs> oh, Yahweh, was not this my word to myself while I was still in my own land? Therefore I went ahead and to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning evil. I knew you'd be like this. It makes me so angry. This is why I ran. Because I knew you were a God of mercy. The irony of the book, Jonah is bitter and angry at God, completely neglecting and forgetting God's treatment of him. Right? Don't you just remember the whole whale thing? Mercy. Don't you remember the, this whole, like, do this again thing, Jonah? Mercy. And Jonah is completely forgetting his past. And that leads him to groaning in work for others in his present. Jonah had a poor memory and it led him to gracelessness and mercilessness in his treatment of sinners around him. Jonah had a poor memory. Now back to Titus chapter 3. According to what did God save you? According to His own mercy. God saw your pitiful state and desired not to give you what you deserve. Instead of allowing you to continue in sin, He chose to expose your sin to you, whether that was through a preacher, a family member, a circumstance a truth that you couldn't get out of your head, God had mercy on you. And it's very important for us to remember what we contribute to our salvation. We contribute sin to our salvation. And that's all. When you remember your past through the interpreter of the Gospel, it produces an interpretation for usefulness for kindness, for graciousness. It compels you to be merciful to those in your life. You don't give them what they deserve always because you have not been given what you deserve. And notice it's not, there's no sin problem in the world. It's not you saying, I'm going to just ignore sin. That's not mercy. That's not the mercy you've received. But instead of that, Instead of rage and anger, and instead of just ignoring sin in your life, you think differently. You say, when you are wronged by someone, you say, I am not going to avenge myself. I'm going to leave room for the wrath of God. That's what Romans 12, 18-19 says. If possible, as far as it depends on you, 
being at peace with all men, never taking your own revenge, beloved. Instead, leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. I can be merciful. Think about this. If you don't redeem your memories, you'll end up praying a lot of prayers like Jonah did. God, I am going to choose to ignore how you have treated me and pray for their downfall. I'm going to pray that you don't treat others as you have treated me. That sounds a lot like Titus 3.3, by the way. In malice and in envy, you say in your heart, I deserve special treatment, but I don't want any special treatment for them. A third remembrance you must have is what God worked in you. What God worked in you. God's grace is throughout the gospel realities of the Christian life. God's grace is from beginning of end to Uh, the believer's life. We see God's grace on display even in the workings of the heart in responding to the Gospel message. This reveals another truth to learn about us, right? Sin is so deep, so permeating in our being as sinners. We don't even have the ability to freely respond to it outside of God's grace. Our hearts are enslaved with lust and the pleasures of sin Our hearts are unable to believe and obey, unable to see the glorious truth of the Gospel. The Gospel in and of itself is intrinsically beautiful and precious, and it will intrinsically draw people to it. But because of our sin, we are unable to see it, appreciate it, hold it, grasp it, embrace it, and be saved. We need God to work in us in His grace. Chapter 3, verse 5. He saved us not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to His mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Spirit whom He poured out upon us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior. Paul makes much of this. Regeneration, renewal, pouring out. This is... This is talk of new birth. You must be born again, our Bible tells us. You must be born from the Spirit, from above, if you are going to hear and respond and believe the Gospel message. You must be regenerated, reborn. This is, of course, a reference to the Holy Spirit's work in the New Covenant as was predicted in the Old, Ezekiel 36, 25-26. Uh, God says, in the future, when I establish a new covenant, a better covenant, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put my spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh we must be transformed to even embrace the gospel and that is the preciousness of god's mercy and grace we are renewed also we are made new and continually new new creations second corinthians 5 tells us 
How do we think about this? How do we think about the gospel in our past? Well, if we don't redeem our memories, we will forgetly, uh, quickly forget perhaps that we have been changed. We have been transformed. We will continue to act as though we are unchanged. We must remember, I am a new creation. I have been given the Spirit to walk in newness of life and bear fruits of the Spirit in my life. This is not by my will and my strength alone, but God's strength and power in me. I no longer have the same relationship to sin. That's how you think about your old memories. Or a fourth remembrance we must have as we think about our sin. Don't forget a fourth remembrance. How has God qualified you for eternal life? This is our fourth remembrance. How God has qualified us for eternal life life chapter 3 verse 7 we see the result the purpose of all god's kindness and mercy and grace what is the result the outcome what is god shooting for halfway through seven we would become heirs according to the hope of eternal life God gives undeserving sinners like you and like me eternal life. That is the outcome of our salvation. But we should never forget the grounds by which we achieve this outcome, uh, through which we are qualified for this entrance into eternal life. The beginning of seven. So that having been justified by His grace, we would become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is the vital requirement of eternal life. And this is the thing we remember as soon as we remember our sins. We have been justified by His grace. You have zero hope of entering eternal life in your own righteousness. You must be justified by grace. Your qualification for heaven is not based actually in God's mercy alone or your transformation by the Spirit. You need more than just not getting what you deserve. You need something you don't deserve, and that is to be justified by grace. God's requirement of eternal life is pretty staggering when you think about it. God's requirement to be in His presence forever is not just the best you can do. It's not just make sure your good works outweigh your bad. It's not just, hey, just it's okay, just be different from now on. It's not just don't do anything serious, seriously bad. God's requirement is staggering. You must possess my own righteousness. Romans 3, right? Romans 3.23, right? All have sinned and fallen short of whose glory? God's glory. You must have God's actual righteousness. Romans 3.20 would say sinners can't find justification in their own works. By works of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin, It almost seems as though Paul is saying, hey, even if you could keep the law, the law is not a means of justification. The law is just God's little happy reminder, hint to you. Look at you can't even do this right. 
That is how far you fall short. That is how justly you are condemned. But what is the good news of the gospel? It is the righteousness of God by faith. Romans 3, 21-22. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. Or Philippians 3, 9. Paul says, I need a righteousness of God and from God. He says this, Philippians 3, 9. I need to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God upon faith. You need God's righteousness given to you as a gift. And that's what justification is. God declaring, counting to you Christ's righteousness to your account. Uh, The Westminster Shorter says this about justification. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein He pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith. You need the righteousness of God and you receive it by faith as a gift in Christ Jesus. His righteousness, not yours. That is what qualifies you for eternal life. Christ's righteousness imputed, counted to you only makes this possible. And if you think about this, this makes everything possible, right? Going back to uh, Titus 3, verse 6, the Spirit is poured out upon us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior. Romans 8 says, the Spirit comes and indwells the believer because of righteousness, Christ's righteousness. That is how the Spirit dwells in us, through the achievement that Christ has made, and we stand in His righteousness. And now we stand in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Ephesians 1.3 tells us, uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. If you don't remember your past through the Gospel, you'll be tempted to forget why you are accepted before God. You'll be tempted to forget why God allows you to come into His presence. And you'll be tempted to start equating how good you are with how your acceptance with God is going. And your heart will sour towards others who wrong you because you hold yourself up too high before God if you don't remember your past. And remember finally, a final remembrance, what such truth demands of you. When you remember your past, you remember the gospel truth that is true in your past. You remember the God who initiates by His own mercy and empowers you to that response and justifies you to qualify you for eternity And that good news is demanding on you. Remember finally what such truth demands of you. Verse 8. This is a trustworthy saying. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be intent to lead in good works. These things are good and profitable for men. Notice, those who have believed God 
Those are people that have received the grace of Christ Jesus and the mercy of God in Christ Jesus and have a continual belief characterizing their life. And what is the result of such truth in their life? They are intent to lead in good works. The word there could be they are busy. They are busy Christians. When your bad memories all your life are interpreted by the truth of the Gospel, you cannot live for yourself anymore. Christ has purchased you. Christ possesses you. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. And your whole life is dominated by His desires. Titus 2. Titus 2, verse 14. He gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. This is the result of the grace of God appearing in your life according to 2.11. You become zealous people. Now, that's a nice term. You may say, oh, that's nice. I want to be a zealous person. But let me suggest to you, if, if you were in the first century and you were saying a zealous person, you would have a totally different thought in your head. It's a very uncomfortable word for a first century Christian to think about. Because that word is literally speaking about political zealots. You know those people that riot against the government. You know those people who are wholly consumed by one thing. I don't care what happens to me. I don't care what happens to the people that love me. I don't care what happens to my things. I don't care what happens to my property. I live for one end. And that is to achieve this purpose. I don't care anything for myself. It's all for this cause. That is a zealot. I burn with a desire to see my cause furthered. doesn't matter what the consequences are in my life. Here's a juicy J.C. Ryle quote. A zealous man in religion is preeminently a man of one thing. It is not enough to say he is earnest, hearty, uncompromising, thoroughgoing, wholehearted, fervent spirit. He only sees one thing. He cares for one thing. He lives for one thing. He is swallowed up in one thing. And that one thing is to please God. Whether he lives or whether he dies, whether he has health or whether he has sickness, whether he is rich or whether he is poor, whether he pleases man or whether he gives offense, whether he is thought wise or whether he is thought foolish, whether he gets blame or whether he gets praise, whether he gets honor or whether he gets shame, for all this the zealous man cares nothing at all. He burns for one thing, and that one thing is to please God and to advance God's glory. If he is consumed in the very burning, he cares not for it. He is content. He feels that like a lamp, he is made to burn. And if consumed in burning, he has but done the work for which God appointed him. Such a one will always find a sphere for his zeal. If he cannot preach, work, and give money, he will cry. 
and sigh and pray. And if he cannot fight in the valley with Joshua, he will do the work of Moses and Aaron and her on the hill. If he is cut off from working himself, he will give the Lord no rest till help is raised up from another quarter and the work is done. This is what I mean when I speak of zeal in religion. You refuse to interpret your past to your own peril and to your own your own lack of enjoying the glorious cause of God. Redeemed memories stoke the fire of passion and desire for God and put out the fear of man in your heart. The one who doesn't redeem their memory has little flame for God. But the one who does redeems their memories always finds a way to serve God. It matters not your age. It matters not your circumstances of life. Zeal will consume you. So let's shut this thing down. When the gospel interprets your bad memories, they are no longer bad. They are reminders of God's greater grace. And they are fuel of service for his name. I love that quote by Newton. I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great Savior. Your redeemed memories, they'll humble you, they'll defend you, but they'll mainly magnify your Savior in your own eyes. And the worse your sins are, the greater your Savior becomes. Therefore, bad memories are valuable and they're useful in Christ's hands. What can I do for the one who has done so much for me? Now, the surprising thing of Newton's testimony is that he didn't stop sinning once he was saved. In fact, he continued to be a captain of a slave ship for four more years. It was only gradually that the evilness of his occupation kind of began to trouble his heart. And when he did leave the trade, it wasn't for a moral reason. It was because he was getting sick. And that may be, just right there, the greatest bad memory that you struggle with as a Christian. It's the ones you commit while you're still a Christian, while you're foolish, while you're ignorant, well, you're slow to hear. Why am I still doing this? Why am I still wasting God's grace like this? And it's through those memories, I imagine, that the devil tempts you most to despair and tells you most of the guilt within. How could I be a Christian and think this way? But I'd suggest that even those bad memories have a great purpose in God's plan for your sanctification and magnify His grace if they are interpreted through the gospel. One of my favorite parts of Newton's biography is how God used the wretch like him. He would enter ministry 
and become both a powerful minister of truth in denouncing the slave trade and magnifying the gospel as well as being a gentle and kind shepherd. He was a minister of truth for sure. In his ministry, he shaped and sent out William Wilberforce. Initially, William Wilberforce wanted to pursue ministry instead of politics, but it was Newton who suggests that he was sent to serve God in the political arena, and their friendship would combine forces to fight and overthrow the slave trade in Great Britain. It was through Wilberforce's brilliant, brilliance as a politician and a statesman, and it was also through Newton's knowledge of the, under, of the ugly underbelly of the slave trade that did it. He was a minister of truth, a pillar of truth through the grace of God and through his memory of his sin. But Newton was also used as a gentle minister of God's grace as well. And no doubt, no doubt it was because of his keen awareness of God's love and patience in his sin. Newton also became a friend of a certain poet named William Cooper. We sang one of his songs. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath the flood loose all their guilty stings. That was Newton's friend. But Cooper was not of the same spiritual stock that Wilberforce was. Newton or uh, Cooper was chronically depressed, and he was almost a leech off of Newton's spiritual life all of his days. There were times where he attempted suicide. Matter of fact, there's a story of John Newton dramatically intervening and stopping him in the process of suicide but we never see Newton, you know, block his calls. We never see Newton lose patience with Cooper, even though he was that leech of a person that just sucked all of your spiritual life out of you. How are you still struggling with depression, Cooper? After all of the things you've written and the glorious lyrics you've composed about the grace of God. No, Newton was patient and kind and was used by God in a quiet way in the life of William Cooper. He was patient with the hardest, slowest learners. Why? Because he had a keen awareness of how God was kind and long-suffering with him. Newton was both a minister of truth and a minister of grace. And I suggest to you it's possible that that is how God intends to sanctify you through your sin to make you stand on the truth of God's word and the grace given in the gospel and to make you an instrument of grace in the life of those around you. Grace through your past will do that, but only as you interpret bad memories through the gospel. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for on this passage and the truth that we learn of you toward us in Christ. Make us more like you, even through it. 
Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.